Again, we've been in our Characters of Christmas series, and we've dealt with Mary and Joseph, the wise men, and even Simeon last week. Today, we're going to deal, deal with another character by the name of Herod. Herod. And this one isn't such a friendly guy. We're going to see. Herod. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, <clears throat> they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. But when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother at night, oh, excuse me, by night, and departed into Egypt. It was there unto the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast of thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. In our passage, we are introduced to one of the most vile and one of the most vicious kings mentioned in the Bible. Herod is said to have ruled between 37 B.C. and 4 B.C. Before someone says, well, I thought Jesus died in 33 A.D., which would mean that before Jesus was even born, Herod had already died. It is believed that Jesus actually was born between 6 and 4 B.C. And so Herod did die... Uh, not long after the birth of Jesus Christ. But this particular Herod was king over a region, if you will, of Judea, which mostly consisted of J Jerusalem. He was one of those men that trusted no one. As a matter of fact, he, he didn't even trust his wives or his sons. And uh, it was the Emperor Augustus who is reported to have said, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. 
And the reason why he made that statement or that comment was because he could see the pile of corpses of Herod's family that continued to grow in the courtyard of his palace. As a matter of fact, in 35 BC, he had a brother-in-law, the high priest Aristobulus, who drowned because he, he had him drowned because he suspected him of disloyalty. He had another brother-in-law by the, uh, by the name of Costabar, who was killed soon afterwards. One of his wives, Mar- Miriam, uh, one of his ten wives, I should say, Miriam, along with her two sons, were both killed by his orders. Another son, Antipas, was executed for treason as well. That's why Augustus made the statement, it's better to be Herod's dog than one of his children, because your life expectancy was much greater. As the corpses piled up, it became abundantly clear what most mattered to Herod. It wasn't family and friends, obviously. It was his position. It was his rulership. He would not allow anything or anyone to jeopardize his rule. He was determined to guard his position, his preeminence, and his power at all costs, and he did. Our passage paints a picture of a very desperate, a very demented, and devilish man. In verse 3, we see that Herod was troubled. Remember that the wise men had come, and they had shared about how Jesus Christ had been born. We'd followed a star. We, we came to see a king. That word king triggered an idea in the mind of this king, and he said to himself, no, that bothers me. I'm extremely troubled because I in no way want to give up any of my authority or my kingship. If there's a threat to my crown, I'll guarantee you it will be gone. He was very troubled, very troubled. In verse 4 through 7, we see that he was tenacious. The Bible tells us here, In the passage that when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. He goes on to ask a series of questions. Why? Because he's trying to accumulate answers. He wants information so that ultimately he can fulfill and carry out his diabolical scheme. He was very tenacious, though. He never gave up. He never would quit. He He was a troubled man. He was a tenacious man. He was treacherous. He was, he was dishonest and he was deceitful. In verse 8 we read, and, when, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. If I could have a show of hands today, and I don't want it, but if I did, and I said, how many of you believe that Herod legitimately wanted to go worship Jesus Christ? I don't think a hand in the room would be raised. Ultimately, we find that in verse 16, the reason why none of us would believe that he wanted to worship him is because he had no desire but to kill him. In verse 16, we note that he was not only troubled, tenacious, treacherous, but he was terrorizing. This guy was a terror. In verse 16, the Bible goes on to say, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Again, the wise men had come to worship this king. 
They knew that the Messiah had been born. They remember reading in the Old Testament about a star that would shine and that star would be his star, Messiah's star. And they made their journey. They made their way to Herod. There they began to talk to him and ask him questions, seeking the child. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to know a little bit more about this child because I want to worship him too. But we know that's not why he wanted to worship, that he wanted that information. He wanted to ultimately destroy the threat to his kingship, his position. And when they did not go back and tell him where that child was, he got so mad, so angry. You've never been like that, have you? You know, you'd be surprised how close you and I come to murder. We can sit here all day all pompous and act like we're so this and all that, but I'm going to tell you something. You put every one of us in the right position, we could easily do not quite what he did, I'm sure. But we could definitely hurt people. All you need to do is read the news. Let me tell you something. We're not above that. But here's what this man did. He was, out, he was enraged. He was so angry he gave a command to go and kill all children that were two years of age and younger. Just to make sure that he got to that king. Wow, can you imagine The sorrow, can you imagine the hurt, the heartache? What a ruthless man. What does Herod teach us? What does he teach us? We saw that Mary teaches us to trust. We saw that Joseph taught us to obey. So that the wise men taught us to worship. Of course, Simeon taught us to wait. What What does this Herod teach us? Herod teaches us to love not the world. Don't you love that world? You love that world, it'll bite you. Today, I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, I don't believe that it was, I don't believe that Herod hated Jesus Christ as much as it was that he loved his position his power, and his preeminence. He had had no reason to track down the Messiah if he hadn't felt threatened. Someone says, well, obviously he hated God. I don't think he hated Jesus. I think he was concerned about his position, concerned about his preeminence, concerned about his power. And because of that concern, he was willing to destroy anyone or anything that got in his way. He loved the world. When you boil it down, Herod loved the world, and his love for the world prompted his hatred toward Christ. See, I don't believe that people inherently hate God. I think that because God stands between them and accomplishing what they want to accomplish, they want to get rid of him. People don't want to bow down or surrender to Jesus Christ's authority because they want to rule their own lives. It's not that they're any worse or any, any more bad than we are as believers. The problem is they have not made a decision to let him rule and reign on the throne of their life. Instead, they try to get him out of their life. And sometimes at all costs. That's exactly what Herod did. I'm going to get rid of him because I don't want to take a chance on him dethroning me. The word of God commands us to love not the world. 
In the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As we begin this journey today, I want to share with you a couple of things. I want to talk to you a little bit today about loving the world. Three thoughts. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue. Father, we love you. We need you. We ask for your leadership. Father, fill me with your spirit. Let me be your mouthpiece today. Father, may you be with every listener. May you anoint their ears that they may hear with spiritual ears. Father, I need you. Stand in my shoes and let me be your mouthpiece. I have nothing to offer this thy people except you, Father. Give it to them through me. Lord, may you be glorified in this service. Father, we commend it into your hands. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Love not the world. That's what the Bible commands us as believers. See, there's no room in, for the world in the believer's life. There's no room for it. It does not belong in our lives. The world is not as much physical as it is spiritual, though. We need to understand. See, you can own things, but you can't allow things to own you. Did you get that? You can own things, but you can't allow things to own you. You can enjoy pleasure, but, but you can't make pleasure your goal in life. Now, in 2 Corinthians 10.3, we find the balance. In chapter 10, verse 3 of Corinthians, the Bible says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. That's the distinction. Every one of us have to walk in the flesh. Every one of us have to deal with a body. I mean, let's face it. We live in a, a world, a physical world. We eat, we drink, we sleep. We function in this flesh. However, we can't allow ourselves to war after this flesh. You have to have a body. You've got to be able to live. You can't without it. You can't live. So, sleep is a necessity to a happy, healthy life. But you can't make sleep your purpose. Make it everything in your life. I know people that want to sleep and relax 24-7. You know what they've done? They love the world. Why? Because they're feeding the flesh. You can't do that. Eating is essential. You don't eat, you don't live. But you... you but But... You can't make food or eating your passion in life. You can't do it. You know, there's that old saying again, do you, do you uh, live to eat or do you eat to live? I'm sad, sadly to say, in America, you know, we're one of the most obese countries in the world. Listen, that's not because we just eat so bad. That's because we eat so much. So I eat, I, I've eaten a lot of McDonald's burgers in my day, but you know what? You know, you've you got to stop at some point. You know, and I don't want the government telling me when to stop either, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that in there. And I still like being able to go down there and get one of them things, especially since they're still a dollar. Once they go up, you might want to say, I don't know if I'll take them anymore. We'll have to see. But that, night, that dollar double cheeseburger is not bad. Now, again, as long as we walk in the flesh, we're not, we're gonna, we have to walk in the flesh to live, but we don't war after the flesh. So fulfilling the desires that emanate from the flesh are not to become our greatest pursuit or goal. 
That's, that's the bottom line. Now, I'm sure that Herod had sacrificed a number of things in order to obtain to the level or to the position that he did. To climb to the top of the ladder, to find and be in that particular realm of authority and leadership, I'm sure that it took a, a, a tremendous amount of effort, time, and energy. His pursuit of power, his drive to succeed, however, was a result of his pride and lust that ran amok. He warred after the flesh. See, to hold a position of power or even prestige is not sinful. That's not wrong. Just because somebody holds a high position, whether it be in government or the military or whether it be in a company of sorts, even a church, there's nothing wrong with holding a position of authority. That is fine. Matter of fact, it can be very helpful in the cause of Christ. However, if we make power, position, and preeminence our goal, we have warred after the flesh and in turn loved the world. If you go to work tomorrow and all your desire is, is no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, I'm going to get that promotion over everybody else. There's something wrong with that. Now, I don't have a problem. I mean, I'm going to step on whoever I have to step on. I'm going to knock people out of the way. I'll lie. I'll steal. I'll cheat. I'll do whatever it takes to get to that spot. You got a problem. You're warring after the flesh. Now, if you're a good employee and you say, man, I've got some ambition, I've got some desires, I want to ultimately rise to the top, I want to be the best employee I can be, and eventually I want to be in a position of manager, and then ultimately I'd like to be the CEO of a company. I don't think there's anything wrong with ambition. I think that's a wonderful thing. But you better make sure it's within the guidelines of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. You can't war after the flesh. But you could be used greatly. I think we do us good to have some politicians that truly love Jesus Christ. I think it'd be great. I think it'd be helpful to our nation. But then again, I don't want anyone that says, well, whatever it costs. If I got to knock this person off, I got to move them out of the way. If I got to step on him or her going up the ladder, too bad. I'm going to get to that spot. You can't tell me that that's of the Lord. That's called warring after the flesh. And that's exactly what Herod did. And proof of it was that his family was dying all around him. Anybody that offered a threat was removed. Herod teaches us to love not the world. Now here it is. I want to share three thoughts with you concerning loving the world. Number one, the problem with loving the world. Here's the problem. First of all, the world is fake. You've got to understand the world's fake. I recently watched a show called Elf. I mean, maybe you haven't. I don't know. I watched it. I like it. I think there's a lot of good theology in that thing. Well, maybe not. But anyway, it was good. And in in that movie, Elf was traveling through the seven levels of the candy cane forest. Through the sea of swirly, twirly gumdrops. And then, of course, he walked through the Lincoln Tunnel. To finally arrive at where? New York City. There he was in New York City. And after he arrives, he stops by a cafe that advertises world's best cup of coffee. I don't know if you saw it, but I'm, I'm explaining it to you if you didn't. The world's best cup of coffee, of course... That's amazing. He's ecstatic. He goes on to congratulate all the workers for their achievement. Great job. Good job, guys. World's greatest cup of coffee. Well, eventually, he, later in the show, he's out with a co-worker, and he takes her to this particular cafe. And there she's, uh, she sits. She's blindfolded at this point, and she takes a sip of that coffee. 
She comments, and I'm going to dumb it down a little bit. She tastes this. She says, this tastes like a, crummy, like a cup of crummy coffee. It is a crummy cup of coffee. She rips off the mask and sees it. And he says, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's the world's best cup of coffee. Elf was deceived into believing that that coffee was the best, when in reality, it was anything but. Now, okay, we laugh at that, and it's funny and all, but in reality, someone like Elf comes along in the world, and he sees that sign. He believed it. He just thought because it says it's good, it must be good. Because it's great, it must be great. Because it says it's wonderful and the best, it must be wonderful and the best. And let me tell you something, the devil's good at selling a bill of goods, and he's good at saying the world is wonderful, and it's just great, and you will be so glad you got involved in it. But I'm going to tell you something, the world is fake, and it is phony. It is not what it appears to be. It never lives up to the hype, and it always falls miserably short of fulfilling and satisfying your longings. The reward of the world is temporary at best. So we see, first of all, the problem with loving the world is that the world is fake. But also the world is ferocious. Again, I know that sometimes we miss this because it seems so wonderful to us and it's shared that way. But in his book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore recounts an NPR program about a scientist named Temple Grandin who's researching new ways to gently kill cows. It's an important issue. Why? Because animals who experience high stress levels prior to death release hormones into their system that ultimately lower the meat quality. So, Grandin has been exploring how to keep the cattle very calm as they're being led to the slaughter. Grandin's research has led to one simple insight. Here's the insight. Novelty distresses cows. And and I'll explain as we go, as as I read the article, but the key is to keep everything in their lives feeling and looking as normal and natural as possible. Russell Moore summarizes Grandin's techniques for gently killing cows. Here's how it works. Quote, workers shouldn't yell at the cows. They should never use cattle prods because they're counterproductive and unneeded. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Sound familiar? Don't surprise them. Don't unnerve them. And above all, don't hurt them. Well, at least until you slit their throats at the end. Along the way, Grannon devised a new technology that has revolutionized the ways of big slaughter operations. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off to the truck, but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp into a smoothly uh, curving path. There there are no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they traveled many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slightly lifts them gently upward, and then a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike between between their eyes. They're transitioned from livestock to meat. And they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. The pioneer of this technology comments to the slaughterhouses and affectionately gives it a nickname. 
He calls it the stairway to heaven. You know, the world, again, paints a beautiful picture. Man, it makes it look so wonderful. And again, we, we have this tendency, if we're not careful, to be lulled into a sense of security. We become safe almost in the midst of this world. And we, we fail to recognize and realize that the world is, is really so diabolical and so ferocious. See, it's not the picture of waxing health or strung out drug addicts or paralyzed victims of drunk driving or unwanted pregnancies, broken homes, wrecked marriages, abused children, domestic violence, prison life, or shattered dreams that Hollywood and advertisers portray to the public. No, they they would never expose the world for what it is and what it does. Instead, they're going to paint this rosy picture of, of beauty and bliss. I mean, what a lie that is. All the beer commercials... The last time, I wonder, have you ever saw a beer commercial with a girl that weighed more than 120 pounds? I mean, unless she's six foot or taller. I mean, have you ever seen a guy on one of those that's really like, you know, really got it going? You know, kind of like most people that drink beer into their 30s or even late 20s, it seems. I remember seeing some of my buddies from school after we graduated, and there they were sitting around, and their guts were hanging out over their belts, and they were only 26, 27 years old. What in the world are you doing? Nothing. Sitting at the bar drinking beer. Listen to me. I don't know about you, but I know that what I have seen in the real world is different than what is painted on a picture of a television set or on a billboard. And yet it seems to me that the world, or that, that we never get it as Christians in the long run. Instead, we continue to allow ourselves to be tempted and and pushed and prodded and sometimes just cozily moved along on that that conveyor belt. Don't be fooled by the world. There's nothing about it that is kind. It is ferocious. Listen, you only need to watch the news and get the real picture of what the love of the world produces. The world is ferocious like its king. You say, what do you mean? 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Don't you think for a minute that the devil likes you or is concerned about you in any way? He hates your guts, and he will stomp you out in the end. He will use you, abuse you, and then discard you. By the way, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he is the God of this world. So he will, like the world, crush you. Not only do we see that the world is fake and is ferocious, but also the world is fleeting. It's fleeting. In 1 John 2.17, the Bible says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The truth is that the world, as you and I know it, is temporary, and it is very fleeting. It appears to be forever. I mean, we, we are born, we, we live, we die. It seems that that's the, obviously the, the norm. But let me tell you something. Sooner or later, this earth is going to be burned up. Sooner or later, it's going to end. And, you know, to invest one's life and in, 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 in everything that you have and everything that you own and everything that you are into the world is very futile, to say the least. And in the end, in the end, a person will be left bankrupt and both spiritually and practically if you invest your energy, your life, your resources in this world, it'll leave you empty with nothing. It's fleeting. 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, the Bible says, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. We have a creator that created all things. If you don't think that, you're not really seeing it. There's no way in the world this just happened. Without a doubt, there's something, a trigger of sorts, that brought it into being. I'll tell you who and what that trigger is. The Lord God himself. And I'm going to tell you, that same Lord God tells us that this earth, this world, this world that we live in today is fleeting. It is not going to be eternal. It's not going to last forever. It's going to ultimately end as we understand it and know it. So everything I invest in the world itself, if it's not an investment in the things of Christ, if it's not an investment in the people of God, if it's not an investment in the world that needs Jesus Christ, if it's not to further the cause of Christ, if it's not an eternal endeavor, it will all be for naught. Because the world is fleeting. See, that's the problem with loving the world. But let's talk about the potential of loving the world. What's the potential? Number one, we become distracted. If you love the world, you will become distracted. Now again, the Bible in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, 38 says, Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Let me tell you, that's the commandment for the entire world. That's not just for people meeting today and under the roof of this church. Everyone should put God first. Everyone should, should worship Him. Everyone should put Him as number one in their life. Wouldn't have life without Him. The believer, especially, is to direct their attention, their activity, and their adoration toward heaven and toward the Lord. He's to be first, without a doubt. The world is a great distractor. It's a great distractor. You, I'm going to tell you something. If a beautiful girl walked across the front of the stage right now, there ain't a guy in the place that'd be focused on me. I'm not stupid. Now, I'm not saying that she's worldly just because she walks across and she's beautiful. I mean, look how handsome I am. I can't help that I'm a distraction. I'm not laughing. <laughs> but the fact is, is that, is that, let's be honest, the world has a draw on us. It has a draw. And, and, and it becomes a distraction to us. It redirects our attention. It puts our attention on self. It puts our attention on pleasure. Our activities ultimately get focused in the wrong direction. And before it's over with, our adoration isn't pointed toward heaven, but it's, our energies are pointed somewhere else. You've got to be careful. Everything from family to fortune can distract us. Our purpose is relatively simple in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to worship Him and we are to witness to others of His grace and goodness. It's pretty simple. But let me tell you something. We often find ourselves overwhelmed with the day. We're so consumed with living that we fail to fulfill our God-given purpose and role. The world's quick to give us a number of other alternatives to worshiping God or to witnessing to Him. I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, do you really think that it's a coincidence that in these days that sports seem to be so magnified, so glorified? 
I mean, they're, they're, literally, if, if, if you watch, if you would go to churches across this country, you would find that come time for the, for the baseball season, there's nobody in church. Everybody's consumed with sports. Everybody's consumed with education. Everybody's consumed with life. Why? Because it is a diabolical scheme to distract people from their real purpose, and that's him. There's nothing wrong with playing ball. Nothing wrong with being part of a team. I think it's great. You need it. I think it's fun. We have little, we have, we have uh, I guess, sporting things. We've got volleyball, we've got basketball, we've got football leagues around here. There's nothing wrong with that. But hold on, they better not distract us from our real purpose. The moments it distracts us from its real purpose, then it's a problem. It becomes something that is of the world now, not of Christ. We've got to be careful. We've become distracted. Number, also, not only do we become distracted, we become delirious at points. You say delirious, that's a nutty word. Yeah, it is crazy. That's exactly what it is. Mentally unbalanced. You know that sin will cause you to be unbalanced in your life, mentally, emotionally, especially spiritually? In Matthew 6, 24, the Bible says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know what we find a lot of times? People trying to serve both. That'll drive you insane. It'll drive you nuts. When one gets distracted by sin and overwhelmed with guilt, it isn't long before they're out of sorts. Listen, you know what? I'm all for needed medication in lives. I think there's people that need medication. I'll go on record. I don't have a problem with certain medications. But I'm going to tell you something. A lot of what we're medicating today is guilt. Because they're sinful lifestyles that are leading to guilty hearts and minds. And it is driving people nuts. Can't live with it. Can't deal with it. God designed you with a conscience. God designed you with a, with a, with a vacuum inside. Listen, you can't play around with sin and not think it's going to burn you. You can't do it. And I think we're seeing a generation of people who have neglected God, who have forsaken the Word of God, and they're living their lives. Uh, listen, how in the world... And please, I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to be uh, divisive, but how in the world do you take the life of your own child through abortion? How do you kill a baby and not live with guilt? How do you do that? Millions of babies, millions of babies taken. We call it choice. Call it whatever you want. It's called murder in the Bible. Listen, how, and listen, people know that down deep. They know that. 20 years after it happens is when they're usually sitting in my office. It's not right when it happens because they can justify it somehow. They, they somehow justify their, their decision because it's in the best interest of the child. It's in the best interest of the, the dad. It's in the best interest of the, the girl. It's in the best interest of the family. They come up with all these means of justifying. But hold on, 20 years later, they're sitting in my office weeping with guilt. Hey, listen, thank God there's a God in heaven. Thank God he is a forgiving God. Thank God he will soothe the hurts and the heartaches. Thank God for the, the balm of Gilead. But let me tell you something. It doesn't change the fact that it has harmed people deeply. I, I, I'm telling you, loving the world becomes not only distraction, but ultimately it can become delirious. And, and, and then we, we become both distracted and delirious. But get this, you can become desperate. The potential of loving the world is that you can become desperate. You say, what do you mean? 
Well, when the world grips our hearts and our minds, and our life consists of what we can obtain, possess, and acquire, we are well on our way to a state of desperation. Because it's just like Herod, you don't want to lose it now. You've worked too hard to get it. No one, nothing is going to keep me from experiencing that. It's mine. I'm telling you, you better be careful. We can, we can become consumed and ultimately desperate to keep what we have. Again, Herod was all about position. He wasn't about to let Jesus Christ or any other king come along and take his throne. He was a desperate man. His family paid the price for it, and anyone who got in his way. I believe there's a number of people living desperate lives today because they love the world, and the love of the world has made certain things more important, more valuable than God ever intended them to be. Hey, listen, somebody breaks in my home, they better hope, they better hope the bullet doesn't strike them. I'm going to shoot them and kill them. You say, that's mean and nasty. No, you come in my house, I see what's going on. People aren't just breaking into steel anymore, they're breaking into hurt and harm. You're not going to harm my family, and I have every right biblically to protect my home. That includes my family. Now, hold on. You don't have to agree with that. You have a right to your opinion. But let me say this. There are some things that we guard with our life, and we're willing to even take life, that God says aren't worth killing for, aren't worth doing all the things. Listen, when you think that you need to cheat, steal, or you need to do something in order to maintain or keep something that you have acquired, you have done that as a result of the love of the world. God will never give you the right to cheat, steal, or kill to protect something Usually in that sense, not to keep a position. Why would you kill somebody to keep a position? So he says, I'm going to be the pastor of Community Baptist Temple. I'm going to kill him. That's stupid. That would be nuts. People do dumber things, though. Don't they? Absolutely they do. We become desperate. You've worked real hard to get where you're at. Maybe you have a relationship that you've poured yourself into. Maybe there's a business venture or an opportunity that promises to produce. Maybe your reputation has been cultivated over a course of years, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the hammer drops, and you realize those things are at stake. Desperate people do desperate things. See, that's what leads us to our last one under the potential of loving the world. Not only do we become desperate, but we can become dangerous. Herod reflects that aspect perfectly, doesn't he? He became extremely desperate and dangerous. Again, his position was so coveted that he was willing to go to any length to protect it. He even killed hundreds, even thousands of babies. You say, that's ridiculous. That's nuts. I would never sink that low. I would never get to that place. I know, maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't take multiple lives, but we are prone to lie, to cheat, to steal, even kill in order to keep what we've lost or what we've gained, I should say. You got a reputation being a good student? You know how tempting it is to cheat sometimes? Maybe you've never been there. But if you're a good student and you've all of a sudden been sick or you've been ill or something's been going on in your life and you haven't had time to study for that final test, listen, you'd be surprised how tempted you are to, to, to cheat. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you have. Maybe you fought the temptation. You didn't follow through. I hope you didn't. 
How many times have you heard of a family member who murdered a loved one in order to inherit the family fortune? That's love in the world. And it led to desperation, which made them very dangerous. David was like that, wasn't he? King David. Think about it for a minute. King David doesn't go out to battle as the appointed time when kings went out to battle. Why? Because he wanted to relax, probably, take it easy. He wanted the comforts of home. There he is in his palace. He walks out on the deck, and down below there, on the roof of her housetop, is a beautiful woman. There he sees her. He lusts after her. He calls to her, has her brought to his presence. There he sins with her and ultimately conceives a child with her. David, the king, I'm talking about God's man. I'm talking about the greatest king recorded in the word of God. Hold on, the story's not done though, as you well know. David now in his desperation devises a scheme in which to somehow do away with the consequences of of his sin. To somehow get rid of the problem, which was a child. So what he does is he brings old Uriah the Hittite in, the, the woman's husband, and says, guess what? You know, go ahead and be with your wife. I know you're supposed to be out to battle, but go ahead and enjoy yourself. He even went as far as to get him drunk so that he would ultimately uh, be with his wife. But no, this man had so much character that he said, as long as my men are out in the field, cold and naked and fighting and striving like that against the enemy, I will not go and enjoy the pleasures of my wife or my home while they're out there fighting. He laid outside. He would not enjoy the, the, the pleasures of his wife because he, didn't, he had too much character. David was so, so frustrated, so desperate, he became very dangerous now. Now he turns around and hands him a note that says, put, me on the, put Uriah the Hittite on the front of the line. And when he gets up there by the walls, have everybody go closer than they're supposed to. By the way, it costs more people their lives than just Uriah. And then he said, once you get up there in front of those walls, close to those walls, which was a no-no, you didn't do that because they'd shoot down on you and kill you. He said, then you have everyone run away and leave Uriah up there. And they did. Man, he tore Uriah. I mean, he killed Uriah. He murdered Uriah the Hittite. Why? Because he was a dangerous man. Why? Because he loved the world at that point in his life. You love the world, you can become extremely dangerous. So can I. It's so wonderful that we had to put the choir down because there wasn't everybody was sick today. Because now it gives me a couple extra minutes. Because this message, I threw away two pages, three pages of this message already. Let me give you this, and I'm going to run through this real fast. But here it is now. What's the price of loving the world? Here it is. You end up losing. You lose. You lose. There's a saying, it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Let's see. Um, I must not have wrote the rest of it in. Oh, yeah, there it is. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. You're going to lose in the end. You always lose when you love this world. Number two, you end up lonely. You end up lonely. You say, how's that? Here's what happens. The real root of worldliness is selfishness. Selfish people don't, it doesn't work. It's all about me. What I can get, what I have. What are you going to do for me? It's not about others. When me gets big enough, there's no room left for others. And that's what loving the world will do in your life. It will literally keep people from being able to get close. 
because it's about you. Be very careful. You end up losing, you end up lonely, and finally, you end up lost. You'll end up lost. See, in the end, the love of the world will leave you bankrupt and lonely in this life. You will have lived a lifetime, and yet, at the end of your lifetime, you will realize that you've accomplished nothing eternal. See, God, as we mentioned already, has a purpose, and He has a plan for your life and for mine. But instead of fulfilling or traveling the road that He has prepared for you and I, that road, of course, leads to joy, it leads to happiness, it leads to fulfillment and satisfaction. Instead of traveling that road, we're going to end up nowhere. Now, someone says, well, I'm young and life's great. Yeah, it's really good when you're young. And usually, usually, even if you're in sin, the consequences haven't caught up with you yet. Now, listen, you can, you can drink and take drugs and you can do a lot of things. And if you're fortunate, and, and it seems to me that a lot of times you can kind of get by, you can squeeze by in your young years. But sooner or later, they catch up to you. Sooner or later, the consequences mount. And pretty soon, it begins to affect you. Now, listen, that's not to say that the first time you take a drug, you, you won't end up in the hospital all whacked out. That's not saying that. But let's, let's just be quite honest. We watch it all the time, don't we? Young people doing things, and we think, man, they're not paying anything for sin. And that's why our young people, they're not here today. They're all out running around. But anyway, uh, not running around here. They're all down at the other building. But anyway, they're, 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 they're not here sometimes, and they're not in the house of God. They're out drinking and smoking and drugging and doing all the things that the world does. Why? Because they say... There's no consequences. My friends are doing it. They're fine. People at school, I go, they're fine. But hold on, it pays. It costs something. It costs something. Don't you think for a minute that it doesn't. You'll end up lost. You'll end up at the place where you don't even know where you end up. You'll say, how did I end up here? Well, you love the world. But here's the real problem. And this is where we close it. You're not only... Not only will your irresponsibility cause you to wander aimlessly through life in search of happiness, but here's the real problem. It'll leave others hopeless and helpless concerning their eternal destination. See, when you as a believer have a, a role to fulfill, you have a purpose in life, and that's to worship God, and that is to be a witness on His behalf. When you fail to fulfill that role and responsibility in your life, you take others to hell. You may not end up there, you may end up going to heaven because you've accepted Christ, you've received the Lord, but instead of helping lead them to the right place, you end up ending up nowhere. Where do they end up? Nowhere as well. Without Christ, and they end up in a place called hell. Listen to me. It is selfish, selfish, selfish to live for self. It is so selfish to discard God, to remove the word of God out of your life as a believer, to say, I'm going to do what I want to do. That is selfish, self-centered and worldly. And let me tell you something, you will lose, and so will all those around you. That's a sad state. Because one day we are going to stand before God and we all will give an account. I would hate to think, because of the choices I made, my children end up in hell. I'd hate to think that. I'd hate that to be the case. I would at least, as of this day, make a decision that I'm going to get on track. I'm going to start giving my life to him, not to the world. And I'm going to get it settled. Because I want to be that testimony and that connection to Christ that my children need. Herod teaches us to love not the world. You have two choices. You can learn from his mistakes 
or you can make your own today. It's up to you. It's up to you. You can learn from his, or you can make your own. You say, I'd never do what he did. No, but trust me. If you've lived any life at all, you know that what I'm saying is true. You know that what this book's teaching is true. Where are you going to be in 20 years from now, if God allows you to live? Present course you're on. You can have lung cancer because you've been smoking your whole life. Cirrhosis of the liver because you can't stop drinking. It's going to cost you. Then think about those other family members. And more importantly, the spiritual side of it. Where do they end up if you don't stand for Jesus Christ? Father, we come to you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. You certainly provide us with so much more than we deserve. And Lord, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace in our life. Thank you for Jesus Christ. But Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us. That you were buried and you rose again the third day. Lord, the world is so alluring. It is so easily easy to be captivated by it, to lose sight of you as a result of this world. Help us not to love the world. Help us not to war after it. But as believers, Lord, may we walk in it, but not war after it. And then may we, Father, be a witness and a testimony of you and your grace. Lord, for those that are here today that don't know for sure heaven's their home, that haven't settled their relationship, Lord, it's not about religion. Father, it's, it's not about what they can do. It's about what you've already done. You've already died on the cross to pay for sin. You've already were buried and rose again to live again. Lord, they, if they want to live, they have to be in you. They have to trust you. They have to receive you and your sacrifice as payment for their sin. Father, today, may they settle that before they leave. May they not leave this room without knowing for sure heaven's their home. Holy Spirit of God, prick their heart, bring conviction in their life of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Lord, may they recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We'll give you the glory for it, Lord. We'll thank you.